Many of you know that I'm a New York Yankees fan. Yes, Yankee fans? Anybody? Oh, good. Here we go. I have been a Yankee fan uh, since I was, I remember watching with my father when I was a little kid in that black and white Magnavox television. And, you know, televisions were gigantic back then, this big box, and it took up, you know, half the living room. And, uh, you know, I was schooled by my dad in the history and the greatness of the Bronx Bombers, the New York Yankees. And then throughout their history, the Yankees have had some pretty good stretches where they've won a lot of games. They did a lot of winning. They won a lot of championships. In fact, by the time that I became a huge fan when I was a kid, when I was just a little kid, they had already won 20 world championships. I remember very distinctly running home from school in 1964 to watch the last out of the last the seventh game of the World Series between the New York Yankees and the St. Louis Cardinals, and Bobby Richardson popped out. I, I, I think it was Dale Maxville or something on second base, and, and I, was, I was very upset because the Yankees had lost. But I, I, I was upset, but I wasn't destroyed. And the reason that I wasn't destroyed is because the Yankees were winners. The Yankees were going to be back next year. I knew that. The problem was that starting in 1965, the Yankees began what was to become a long, almost unbearably disappointing string of terrible seasons. They played at times so badly. I would be listening on my little transistor radio because my mother would have killed me if she knew it, but I had it underneath my pillow because I had to go to bed at a certain time. You got to get, you know, she's very manic about that. You got to go to bed at a certain time. And I had it underneath my pillow and I'd be listening. And I remember one time she came in and instead of turning it off, I turned it louder. And I went, ah, I know. You know, Phil Rizzuto was, was, was doing the play-by-play, and I got, in, I got in trouble for that one. Anyway, um, uh, you know, they played so badly, and as the, the losing years went on, I, could, I got to a point where I could barely stand the year-in and year-out disappointment. I think it's what Met fans feel for in this era. I think it pretty much it's what they, they've been going through. Um, those were, uh, sorry, no, not really, I'm really not. Those were difficult years, though. They were difficult years to take. Uh, anyway, uh, during those t- that 12-year stretch of bad baseball, there were times when I often kept my love and my loyalty for my sport team kind of low-key around certain people. The reason for that was because I grew up with a bunch of guys, mostly, who hated the Yankees. And, you know, this series of finishes in the bottom of the division gave them fodder to, for this unrelenting verbal barrage every time we would get together and talk about baseball. And back then, everybody played baseball. It wasn't, it wasn't soccer and this and that and all this other things. Everybody played baseball. And whenever I tried to defend my beloved Bronx Bombers, it would elicit long, bellowing howls of laughter. And then they started winning again, about the time when I first went into college. And it all became much easier I once again proudly displayed my hat. Where's that Yankee hat I had? Where is that? You know, where's that jersey? Where's that? You know, I'm, I'm proud to be a fan now. I want everybody to know. I don't care. I want the entire community to know that I'm part of the Yankee community. And, and you know what? The rest of you, who cares what happens to you? I just wanted everybody to know that. <laughs> a Met fan. I'm, I'm sure a disgruntled Met fan. Folks, when I think about that, uh, isn't it funny, not funny, haha, but weird, how, how fickle our loyalties to our community can be? When things are good, we're all too eager to put on our team's hat, you know, and begin, be the one that's throwing the barbs 
at the guys who are rooting for the other teams. It is a literal blast when your team is winning regularly. But when things turn ugly, a lot of times we find ourselves backing away. And sometimes we may even find ourselves saying, who, me? You know, when, when, when we're being accused of being uh, an enthusiast. Like Peter. Remember Peter? And, you know, feeding the 5,000. Let's go, everybody. Come on up. We got plenty of food. Don't push. Don't push. One at a time. Let's go. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus now has been arrested. And, he, and basically it's like, Jesus who? Gee, what? Oh, I heard about him. Yeah, that, you know, that kind of thing. Now, now I got to tell you, um, sometimes, no matter how close or committed we feel to our community, when things begin to go south, we are tempted to find another team. But the man whose prayer we read about, you know, this morning, and Lee read for us just a few minutes ago, refused, categorically refused to do that. Daniel was a guy who refused to distance himself from people at a time when he had every right to do so. And he hung around. He did that because at his core, he had an understanding that he was joined at the hip with them. They were a part of him. He was a part of them. And, and, and he believed this to his core. When things were on the rise, he was obviously with them. But when things looked bad, when they acted badly, he did not cut and run. And as Skyfit Jithani said, he accepted the blessings of God's people, but he also accepted the responsibility for their sin. He identified with them when things were not so good. Now, Daniel, to my knowledge, is different from almost any person recorded in Scripture in this sense. He is one of the only people that I could think of as I was thinking about it this week who was mentioned, who was mentioned more than in mere passing. You know, you read names and they, there's two lines about him. Anyone who's like kind of a major figure, he is, I, I think he may be the only one where there is no overt sin attributed to him. Think of it. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Moses, Elijah, David. We have records, long records of sinful disobedience concerning them all, but not him. Not Daniel. Was it because he was sinless? You know the answer to that, right? Of course not. But for whatever reason, we have no record either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament of overt sin attributed to him. Sure, he was impacted uh, by the sin of others around him. He was impacted by the sin of his community. Daniel was stripped of his family. He was taken away into Babylon, a place he'd never seen or heard of before, presumably never to return again. But we don't read much about his sin. Now I'll tell you what we do read about when it comes to Daniel. We read about this. We read about his loyalty. We read about his courage under life and death pressure. We read about his faithfulness from the time he was a young man to the time he was an old man here in chapter 9 of Daniel. And he's stepping close to the precipice of eternity. He's ready to die. Now, some think that Daniel was the most righteous man to be depicted in Scripture until the arrival of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, when Daniel was a, a little kid, the sin and the decadence of his people was reach, reaching at that time a fever pitch when he was a teenager. 
And God, after repeated warnings, had had enough of his people and judgment was coming and the Babylonians came. It was foretold it was going to happen. And they came and they broke down the gates of Jerusalem. And when those gates of Jerusalem came crashing down, he, along with many of his people, were swept away from the destroyed city and carried hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to a place they didn't know. Now, you think about that. And you would think that a harrowing and tragic turn of events like that would turn a young man's loyalties. Ah, it's too tough. Ah, God's forgotten me. Ah, God doesn't love me. But it didn't. And even in captivity, Daniel remained, we read in his book, faithful to God, though he was literally ensconced in in an idolatrous culture. He refused to worship their idols. He refused to participate in the Babylonian diet since it violated God's law. He refused to stop praying to God as it was his daily routine, choosing to obey God's law rather than man's law, though it nearly, nearly cost him his life in the lion's den. Remember? In fact, in verse, what verse is it? In verse 23, it says that Daniel was highly esteemed by God. That's a pretty, pretty high praise. Now you think about that. You think about Daniel. And a guy like that probably in his lifetime gave out some pretty good advice. Wouldn't you think? I mean, I'd listen to a Daniel. You know, Daniel puts a shingle out. He's a counselor. I don't care how much he charges. I'm going, I'll, I'll go sit down on his couch and listen, listen to him. This guy was highly esteemed by God. He's a wise man, no question. So when his people who heard him and listened to him and were, saw him minister in Babylon for so many decades, totally ignored his words, totally ignored his example, this guy is, is tailor-made to be the kind of guy that goes, I told you so. I, t- you know, I told you. Have you ever done that? Oh, give me a break. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Say to somebody, I told you so. It is, I think it's our natural default. You know what? It's like, you know, and, and a lot of times we don't even say it to the person. But, you know, I remember one time, uh, you know, uh, somebody did something really stupid. I told them, I warned them, and I went to people, not them, but I went to people. I said, you know, I told them. I told them this was going to happen from the day one. I knew it was going to happen. And look, it's going to. Now, folks, I got to just tell you this. Just as a little sidelight, all right? Whenever you do something like that, and you say, I told you so, and you do it in front of people or in front of the person, your, your stock never goes up. It never goes up. It always goes down. I just want you to know that. So if you think somehow that it's making you look great or something, it doesn't. People hate you when you do that. They just do. They just hate people like that, okay? So, but this is a guy who really could have done that because the guy was highly esteemed by God. He could have said, and if he did it, nobody would have blamed him. No one would have blamed him. It was because of their sins that he was carried away from the only home he had ever known. So he had some skin in the game. It was because of their sins that he had to endure 70 years of captivity along with them. It was because of their, not his sin, because of their sin that he had faced scrutiny and death, which makes the prayer that he prayed in Daniel 9 all the more amazing. Because in his prayer, Daniel literally took upon himself as Jethani said, the sins of his people. In our recent series in Jonah, especially, and leading up to our 21-day fast, 
We have done a lot of talking about the importance of self-examination, of doing the hard work to uncover the sins that are buried deep in our hearts and dealing with personal sin. Now, they have been important uh, topics. They have been important messages. They were needed discussions that we all needed to have. In fact, last week, we linked repentance personal repentance, that is, to the blessings of God that he wants to shed on our lives and in the lives of our family. And we had said that it's not enough simply to desire God's blessings in your life, that you needed to what? Position yourself to receive those blessings. Now, Daniel knew that, uh, he, he knew that unless the, his people positioned themselves, they would never receive the blessings that God wanted them to have. So they needed to examine themselves They needed to repent of sin in their own lives. That's what we talked about last week. But today, I want to look at another aspect of examination, which comes out of this exact same prayer. Communal examination. I want to look at the the act of identifying sin in us. Us all, okay? The sin in us as a community of believers. In the life of the church, communal examination, I believe, is just as important as self-examination, yet we do so little of it. It's part of positioning ourselves, crossing church, for God's blessings. Because you know what I've said, it's not enough to simply desire God's blessings in your life. You need to position yourself to receive them. And part of that positioning is examining ourselves as a church as a collective people of God. So here's the question. Why did Daniel take upon himself the sins of his community? And why should we? If we should, why should we? Four things. Uh, Number one, Daniel understood his relationship with God as fundamentally corporate in nature. Daniel understood his relationship, his personal relationship with God, as corporate in nature. It was personal, but it was also corporate. Now, I don't know if you caught it when Lee was reading the passage this, uh, you know, this morning, just a little while ago, but did you notice how often Daniel, when referring to the sin of the people, said we? Did anybody pick that up? Okay. Al, you picked it up, right? Because you're, you're a Met fan, and you're just a little bit above, a little cut above, right? All right. We have sinned, it said. We have done wrong. We have not listened. We are covered with shame. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have not sought the favor of our Lord, our God, by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Your curses have been poured out on who? Us. We. Now, Daniel, as we said, is not sinless. He, along with all of us, suffer from curvature of the soul. We all get it. But the sins of Daniel, I do not believe, would have ever brought the response of God and the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. If it was just Daniel, you know, God would have dealt with that. But they were so egregious that God had to judge the nation. And I think that Daniel could have said them. I think he could have said they. They have sinned. They have done wrong. These people have not sought the favor of you, O God. And if he did that, he would have been totally right. No one would have faulted him. You know what Daniel's doing? He's identifying himself with the nation's 
sins. Daniel had an intimate relationship with God. He prayed to the Lord three times a day. In this chapter, we see Daniel speaking with God, as we know. God, in turn, spoke to him through visions and through dreams, if you know the book of Daniel. But despite this personal relationship with God, Daniel still saw his connection to God as fundamentally corporate. Who was Daniel a descendant of? Daniel was a descendant of Abraham, which meant he belonged to the nation of Israel. It was Israel with whom God had established a relationship. It was Israel that God chose from among all the nations to be his very own, a holy nation, a chosen people. In Exodus chapter 19, speaking to Israel, the Lord said this, Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, Daniel got it. Daniel understood that. He understood that God had called a people to himself, a community to himself. And at the end of his prayer in chapter 9, he calls God to hear and to act because God's people are called by whose name? By his name. And Daniel sees his connection to God as corporate. And as such, to be united with God is to be united with God's people. In Daniel's mind, the two are inseparable. They're inseparable. Daniel's faith was built upon the assumption that God's concern was communal and not merely individual. He believed that God's relationship with us is not just personal and private, but corporate and collective, that God has called to himself a people, not merely separate individuals. And this loomed large in Daniel's thinking as we see him identifying with the sins of his people. Second, Daniel understood the communal communal nature of sin. Daniel understood the communal nature of sin. Daniel not only recognized personal sin, which he did, but he also recognized corporate sin. And he knew that both needed to be repented of. Amen? They did. I was brought up to believe that sin is basically personal in nature. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, You know, and I I have a feeling I know where it came from. We live in a country that values individual rights, that values individual freedom. Uh, The individual, listen, folks, whether you know it or not, the individual in the U.S. is king. It's, it's, it's the solitary individual. And in, in, in the West, especially modern Westerners, you know, we are focused on the individual. Corporate societies where the whole, the whole is considered to be more important than the individual, that's just weird to us. Let, let, let's admit it right now. We have some people in our congregation today who came from cultures like that. It's not weird to them. But it's weird to someone who spent their whole life in the U.S. Even the family unit. Americans view the individual as even more important than the family unit as a whole. It has spilled over into how we view our sin. So it's not strange to see, as Steve Reason noted, that, quote, to Westerners, the doctrine of corporate sin sin is unfamiliar and its implications are unnoticed. Sin was spoken of strictly in terms of the individual for all the years I was growing up, and, and, and up until, I'm going to say 
pretty recently in my life. That's, that's how I looked mostly at sin. You know, I lusted, I hated, my mouth spoke the vile words to that person. It was me who cheated. I, me, my, mine. Sin was individual, and as an individual, I needed to repent of those sins, and everybody has to do stuff like that. And this individualism applied to my relationship with God as well. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, certainly Daniel had an individual relationship with God, but it was an individual relationship in the context of community. And the two were inseparable, as I said, in his eyes. So when Daniel knelt privately in prayer to his God to confess his own sins, he did not merely examine himself. He also examined the community to which he was in. This explains Daniel's language, our sin, our rebellion, we have done wrong. He includes himself with God's sinful people. Now, if you listen to the words of most of the songs and choruses in the church, they reflect a very individual view of faith, of sin, and relationship with God. Hatred is an individual problem. Gluttony is an individual problem. Lust is an individual problem. Racism is an individual problem. And as such, they need to be dealt with by individual repentance to the Lord. Now, listen. On one level, this is absolutely true. No question about it. What did they... Do you remember David? First, first I'm thinking, are there any examples in Scripture of individual... David 51. Psalm 50. In fact... It's Pastor Peter. Pastor Peter, where are you? He's, he's, oh, he's downstairs. He's teaching. He's preaching to the kids. Good for him. All right. Well, he preached on, on Psalm 51. The last, when he was here, remember when he was preaching? You didn't know he was. We were kind of checking him out. You didn't know that. We just thought he was. But he preached on Psalm 51, a wonderful message that I listened to. And David said this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. See, the Bible seems to indisputably teach what? Individual repentance. Individual sin and individual repentance to receive the blessings of God. I need to examine myself individually. But let me ask you this. How often do we confess corporate sins? Does it ever even cross your mind? Do you remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Let me, let me just remind you some of the phrases in that, in that, you know, the Lord's prayer should be the disciples' prayer. It had phrases like this. Whose father? Our father in heaven. Give us this day daily bread and then he touched on the communal nature of sin forgive us debts lead not into temptation deliver us from the evil one daniel offered a prayer for his people that reflected the deep corporate nature of god's people and of their sin and we must take upon ourselves the sins of others for god to bless this community let me ask you something Does corporate sin ever embed itself in churches and communities and nations? I think it does. I think it absolutely does. I I, I remember very distinctly this past week as a college student attending Northeastern Bible College, which used to be right over here in in Essex Fells. And uh, I remember one Sunday attending a church nearby. 
And this church uh, was reportedly, you know, spiritually and theologically deep. And I was studying the Bible, so I figured I better start getting deep. You know, I mean, this is, if, if this is where they get deep, I'm going to go to this church and get deep with them. And at least, you know, I, so I visited the church anyway. And the pastor was basically supposed to be the reincarnation of the great philosopher, pastor, and revivalist of the 18th century, John Edwards. Not literally, but you know what I mean. And I attended that church for three weeks. And the pastor, as advertised, was a very, very good and thorough teacher. But every Sunday when I went home, something was bugging me when I went back to the campus. And then it finally hit me. I, I, I'm not hearing a lot of grace. And I'm not feeling a whole lot of love. <laughs> I would go so far as to say that this guy struck me as cold, literally cold. And I believe that trickled down to the congregation. You know why I say that? Because in the three weeks that I attended, not a single person, not one, even greeted me. They didn't even look me. I don't, I don't know if anybody even looked me in the eye. I think that's why I'm so over-the-top manic. You know what? How many people greeted you? Four. Four? You should have had eight people greet you when you walked into this church. I, I, you know, we're, we're all a product of our growing-up years, aren't we? I mean, we are. And I think that, that made such an indelible mark on me. This is a church. This is a local church. No one even greeted me. And so I, you know, I left. Look, look, is warmth a fruit of the Spirit? I don't read warmth as a fruit of the Spirit. It's not specifically mentioned. But warmth is certainly a byproduct of love and joy and peace and patience. Is it not? And when you don't see it, you just have to assume some things. They were theologically astute, but they were cold as ice. And to this day, I believe that church was guilty of institutional sin. What about a country? Is there such a thing as institutional sin in a country? Was African slavery a national sin of many nations 200 years ago, including the United States of America? I would say yes. And here is the thing about institutional corporate sin. Often when sin embeds itself into a culture, the people of the culture cannot even see it. It's like a fish swimming in water. You know, you interview a fish, it's the last thing they'll tell you about is the, the, the water that they're swimming in. They don't, they don't see it. It's just so par- much a part of them. The aforementioned Jonathan Edwards, who many, including both church and secular people, considered perhaps the greatest mind ever produced on these shores, owned slaves for a large part of his life before he finally turned viciously against the slave trade. I found that out this week. All the things I've read by Jonathan, I'm, you know, and, and, and I'm, I read him, I read his sermon, I say, wait, what? He, he, was, he owned slaves. What, what, what do you care? Folks, communal sin is practiced subconsciously or unconsciously, but it's practiced, it's practiced actively by everyone in that culture. It is the water that we swim in. What about today? I would say that a driving passion to satisfy our lusts, and I'm talking about our culture that we live in, through attaining things, I think that's our national sin. Attaining more, 
getting more. Materialism, I believe, is a national sin that we are dealing with, and we're so much a part of it, we don't even see it. Maybe it's the sin of your family. Or maybe, maybe the sin of your family is anger. Folks, i got to tell you, there are families that I've dealt with where you, you go and you visit the family and you say, I'm going to sit near the door because, you know, uh, in case I have to make a quick exit because everybody's mad in this family. I could just feel it. I just, you, 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 somebody's going to blow. Or maybe, maybe your family has an institutional sin, a family sin of a lack of faith. When, whenever a challenge presents itself, even challenges that many would consider mild or moderate in nature, oh, well, look, at, we know what's going to happen. The sky, sky's always falling. The sky is always continually falling. Whatever the worst case scenario could possibly be, obviously that's what's going to happen. And you've got to sit back and wonder if faith has really found a firm footing in that family. You've got to wonder. But the thing is, like all communal sin, they don't even see it. They don't even see it. They think they're just being prudent. And, and preparing. Do you see yourself as a part of a whole or strictly an individual? Are you part of a, of a grander, bigger group? Or do you see yourself strictly as an individual? One author wrote this. I really liked it. Do you think of yourself as an isolated, amputated appendage or as part of the diverse and unified body of Christ? Are you a lonely brick or one stone among many in a great temple of God? Are you just a person who has a relationship with God? Or do you belong to a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God? How you answer these questions will determine your values, how you view the church in your life, how you relate to those seated next to you, how you pray, and how you understand sin. The doctrine of corporate sin helps us recognize the sinfulness on the group level and that, you know, that we need to correct it and we need to address it. And if we're going to address it, we're going to need to address it on that level too, on a corporate level. On the personal level, a healthy and honest look at any corporate sin promises healing and transformation if repentance is involved. Now listen, since Daniel understood his relationship with God as fundamentally corporate in nature, and since Daniel understood the communal nature of sin, as, as Sky Jathani noted, he came to two very uh, hardcore conclusions. Here was the first conclusion he came to. Daniel saw that to claim the blessings of God's people, he must also, at the same time, claim their sin. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 9, Daniel says that he has been reading the words of, uh, of the prophet Jeremiah. That's in the, at the beginning of... Uh, uh, we didn't read it this morning, but le- last week we, we read it, okay? The book of Jeremiah speaks of God's promise. This was God's promise to one day, after the 70 years are over, to restore his people after their captivity. He promises to do several things. He promises to heal them, to protect them, to draw them near to him, to take them near to him once again, those who have been in captivity will once again be brought near. Daniel has spent virtually his entire life as an exile in Babylon. And he's reading these words. And can you, they, they had to touch him. Don't you think that he's reading them? He's going, oh, 
it's about, it's almost there. I mean, it's just, maybe it's my lifetime. If I could just, you know, keep it going a little longer, maybe I'm going to see it. Maybe I'll be part of it. Maybe I'll be part of that renewal. His heart must have longed to see the promises made real. He must have longed to once again be free and to be safe and to be home. Home. Babylon was not his home. And this longing to receive God's blessing led Daniel to a time of examination and confession. And it led to this this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. But the promises of God's blessings he read about in Jeremiah were not promises to Daniel. You catch this? They were not promises to Daniel. They were promises to Israel of which Daniel was a part. The communal scope of God's promised blessings led Daniel to examination and reflection on a communal scale which uncovered communal sin. That's what uh, Daniel 9 is all about. Daniel longed for the blessing and restoration that God had promised his people. He, He waited for it his whole life. He wanted to return to Jerusalem. He wanted to be restored to his home. But to include himself in the promised blessing of God's people meant also taking upon himself the communal failure of his people too. We must take upon ourselves the sins of others for God to bless this community. Can you believe those Yankees? They're terrible. They, you're right. They stink. Wait a minute. Weren't you the kid that I saw running off the bus, running home because you love the Yankees so much you, you wanted to watch the last inning of the world? Yeah, same kid, right? I was happy to include myself in the euphoria of winning, but wasn't quite as enthusiastic when the team became a mess. Just wasn't quite there with them like I was. The same tendency is found among God's people. When things are going well, we are eager to join the blessings that are the church, right? Wednesday night, people praying, we're singing, the guys were playing up here, and we're, oh, it was, a, and I got to tell you something, it was a blessed time, yes, those of you here, it was a blessed time, we're going to do it again, we're going to do, we're going to try and make it a quarterly thing, and, and it was just a blessed time, I, I, it, no, no, no question about it, okay, we, 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 we were exulting in, in, in the blessings of God. But what about when things all of a sudden may go south? What, what about when they turn sour? Uh, what, what about when things are, are, are not going so well? When things, you know, do we want to claim God's promises and blessings as our own? Then we quickly distance ourselves from what we'd rather not claim, like sin or conflict or pain. Many times that is the case with, with us, with, with Christians generally speaking. We want the good things of the corporate nature of the church, but the really tough things, the things when we are listening to people who are in real pain, when we are somehow trying to be a go-between between people in real conflict, when we see people who are in real sin, and we know they're heading towards the cliff and working with people who have convinced themselves, or Satan has convinced them, that this is the right way to go. Folks, i got to tell you something. You... You want to deal with messes? Start dealing with that. You start dealing with that. And a lot of times people go, we like Sunday. Woo! You know what? We're not sure we want to sign up for the rest of it. 
can you even believe this team, how messed up they can get? I mean, enough is enough. I'm glad I'm not that deeply a part of them. Daniel shows us a different way. Rather than valuing individual autonomy, Daniel values communal commitment. For him, the household of God is not a team you're a part of when things are great, but you jump up into the stands to boo the team on the field when things get rough and get messy, which they will. If we're going to own the good stuff, folks, we got to own the bad stuff too. We got to own the bad stuff too. I'm telling you right now. Daniel approaches the sin of God's people in that fashion. And whether or not Daniel personally engaged in all the sins listed in, in, in chapter 9, it, folks, that is irrelevant. He lived out the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, 26, which says this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Daniel embraces the pain and consequences of his community's sin as his own. He owned the good, so he also knew he needed to own the bad. And he did. He was part of a man who was highly esteemed by God. People like that are highly esteemed by God. We have to take upon ourselves the sins of others for God to bless this community. Last thing, quick point, last one. Daniel saw his responsibility to lead the people in confession. He saw it as his responsibility to lead the people in confession. As I said earlier, Daniel was a remarkable, he really was a remarkable, remarkable man. He had, he had lived many years in rich communion with God by the time he's writing Daniel chapter 9. He was faithful, he was righteous, he was good. Daniel was a leader, he was a, a mature man of faith who could, who could lead the rest of God's people just by doing what he does. Even if he didn't open his mouth, just by watching it. Do you ever have somebody like that in your life who's just watching them? They're just exemplary. You're looking at them, you're going... I don't know what they're, they're drinking, but I, that's, that's what I wanted. I don't know what it's tonic or something. I, I want some of that. Give me some of that stuff. He didn't even have to do anything. I say anything. But in, in his prayer of confession, Daniel does not lead by putting himself above the people. Instead, he leads God's people from within by identifying himself in them, with them, with their sin, and with their burden. Daniel's community carried the heavy guilt of uh, consequences of their sin. They really were. But revealing his godly character, Daniel came alongside and bore the burden with them. And in doing so, he shows us an attitude that is richly biblical and richly godly. Very godly. The Apostle Paul tells us that inside the household of God, we ought to bear one another's burdens. And in so doing... We fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6. Godly leadership does not lead from ahead, but from within, by coming alongside others to help them carry their load. Their load of pain. Their load of sin. Their load of guilt. That's why I'm borderline fanatical about life groups because I think it's there we bear each other's burdens. It's the way Jesus led. Did you know that? (laughs) 
You know, uh, John 1.14 tells us that the word, Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Daniel, in, in a sense, planted himself right in the middle of the mess that was his people. He took uh, uh, upon himself a sense of their sins as a fellow sinner. He felt a unity with them, a connection. And folks, when, when God wanted to free us from the captivity and burden of sin, you know what he did? He sent his son to be among us. The word is tabernacled. He set up his tent and he began living with us. That's what it means. Jesus, who was in very nature God, perfect, he was blameless, he was righteous, beyond any measure, did not claim equality with God to be something to be grasped in his earthly manifestation. He did not remain distant from his people. He did not lead from a high and distant place. Instead, he took the form of a man. He set aside the riches of heaven. He became uh, uh, the, 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 the son of a poor woman and a poor man, familiar with suffering and pain. And although he was without sin, he was perfect. The Bible says he was perfect in every regard. He bore our burden of sin on a Roman cross upon his back. It's Friday night. We're going to be remembering that in a real special way at 730. Hope you're going to be here. But it's always one of our best services, I think, of the year, our Good Friday services. He bore our sins on that cross. He did not resist the torture of the cross. He did not resist the rejection of his own people. He did not even resist death because upon him he knew the iniquity of us all would be laid, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of the cross. Daniel, as one who knew the heart of God intimately, he took that path. He took that path. He bore the sins of his people. He led them from within by identifying with them, by carrying the burden of sin, their sin with them, alongside. And folks, let me just say this in closing. If you find yourself in a position like Daniel, I mean this. I mean this. From the depths of my heart, I mean this. If you find yourself in a position like Daniel, if you have walked with God faithfully, if you have sought purity in the midst of your fallen nature, I got one request. Help us. Would you please help us? Would you please help me? Would you help the Crossing Church? We need you. Help carry the burden of our sin. Although you do not deserve the burden and although you have no part in the sin of God's people and would prefer sometimes to remain in the stands, would you come play your part in the body of Christ? Would you think about doing that today and coming alongside and helping us? Come alongside your brothers, come alongside your sisters and identify with the people of God in their sin and in their struggles. In the life of the church, communal examination is just as important as self-examination. And we must take upon ourselves the sin of others for God to bless, ultimately, this community. We want God to bless the Crossing Church. This is what the 21-day fast is all about. We are crying out for more of God. We are praying for Him to heal those who are sick and, and, and relationships which are destroyed and financial pictures that look bleak. 
We're asking God to do miracles in our midst. We're asking God corporately to heal our church. No matter how you viewed the church in the past, whether you have been on the team or just sitting behind the dugout in the stands, now is an opportunity for all of us to express our connection and our unity in Jesus Christ. It's a chance for all of us to get on the team, young and old and men and women and leaders and members and attenders, innocent and guilty, to come before our God as one people who bear his name.